If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, Green Dreamer, I just wanted to give you a heads up that we'll be taking a brief summer hiatus after reaching episode 260. To be honest, I'm personally a little burnt out, so as much as I need to evaluate the show's practical next steps, I also need a mini break for my own mental health. So we'll be taking a pause from releasing new conversations until the fall, but I will be replaying some past episodes throughout this break that I feel like are really relevant to this time or that are just really worth diving into because there's so many past conversations that I learn more from each and every time I listen again and again. Also, we do already have hundreds of conversations in the archive, so if you're not entirely caught up or haven't had a chance to go back to listen to some of our earlier episodes, I hope you'll take this brief pause as an opportunity to do that as well. And as we look ahead, I really want to thank our patrons for pulling together and helping us meet our August Patreon goal within days of me putting out a call for support on social media. So you know who you are. Thank you so much for believing in Green Dreamer and valuing our work tangibly in a way that is really helpful to keeping this platform alive. If you're not yet a patron and you've listened to more than a few episodes and you're not struggling financially, of course, I'd love to have your direct support as well if you're able, starting at just a tip of $2 to help us continue building building up this community supported platform. And the link to our Patreon is greendreamer.com slash support. This is of course linked in all of our show notes and at our website as well. But anyway, I just appreciate you a lot for taking time to tune in again and again to learn, deepen and broaden your knowledge and perspectives on intersectional sustainability and regeneration. So let's keep it going and growing together. If we kind of step back and we ask ourselves the question, how does the planet manage heat? Then we're looking at the water cycle. So the way that we've talked about climate, you know, we as a society is that we've tended to look only at the carbon cycle. But once we look at the water cycle and we understand how that works, not only do we understand a lot more, a lot more deeply where many of our climate problems come from, but also where the solutions are. 
That was Judith D. Schwartz, who you may already be familiar with because she's been on the show before. It was back in episode 130, where we talked about how our myopic approach to addressing climate change by fixating on reducing carbon emissions has been preventing us from getting us to the core of the problem manifesting in climate change as the symptom. And it was a really profound conversation that really complements this episode well. So if you end up enjoying this episode, definitely tune into episode 130 after this if you haven't already. But anyway, Judy is a journalist and the author of Cows Save the Planet and Water in Plain Sight, Hope for a Thirsty World. Her new book publishing this month in August of 2020 is titled The Reindeer Chronicles. Water will be the primary focus in this episode as we talk about things like why we need to look beyond how much water we use to understanding the water cycle itself when talking about water scarcity and conservation, why we need to understand and address climate change through the lens of water and not just carbon dioxide, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Last time we chatted, we focused that discussion on the carbon cycle and soil carbon, When we talk about water issues, a lot of that centers on access to clean water, and that is a really important cause. But when we talk about climate change, rarely do we look to water as being a key part of the problem and the solution. For our listener who may not be familiar with why water should be a central topic in the climate discussion, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so if we kind of step back and we ask ourselves the question, how does the planet manage heat, then we're looking at the water cycle. So the way that we've talked about climate, you know, we as a society is that we've tended to look only at the carbon cycle. But once we look at the water cycle and we understand how that works, not only do we understand a lot more, a lot more deeply where many of our climate problems come from, but also where the solutions are. So so basically, the planet manages heat via various water cycle functions. Okay, so we'll take a really, really one basic one, and that is transpiration or evapotranspiration. And transpiration is the upward movement of water through plants. And evapotranspiration means that we're also including the evaporation from the surrounding soil. So the important thing to know about transpiration is that, so so that's when water turns into water vapor, is that it consumes energy. And because it consumes energy, it's a cooling process. So you know how when you boil water, that's taking water in its liquid form and turning it into a gas. Well, we need to turn on the, you know, the electric stove in order to make that happen. And so that's using energy. So transpiration takes heat energy and 
moves it up into the atmosphere so that it's suspended, that energy is suspended in the water vapor. So it sounds really, really technical, but what we're talking about is that plants are actively cooling, creating cooling everywhere there is a plant. So you look at you look at a forest. Okay, let's say that you're walking in a forest and it feels really cool. Maybe it's a hot day. Well, one reason that you're feeling cool is that there's the shade, but beyond that, all of those trees, all of that brush is cooling the atmosphere by taking the solar energy that's beaming down from the sun and moving that energy into a latent state. So, yeah, so this is kind of sciencey, but <laughs> Very it's actually, actually really, really huge. Okay, so we'll take another example. All right, so here it is. It's a hot day, all right? And let's say that you are walking in a meadow. So that, you know, where your feet are is really, really cool. Let's say that you're on a sidewalk. It's really, really hot. So that you can really tell in the moment by where you're walking. But in terms of what is happening to the solar radiation, it's actually really important because in that meadow, the plants are taking that solar energy and and transmuting it into, into the water vapor, into mist, so that it's cool. And when you look at that, like if you think about the whole world, when you think about all of the places where we're losing plant cover, whether that's because the land is desertifying, whether that's because land is being cleared from forest and now you have bare soil, whether it's because we're paving that land and putting in roads and houses and where there had been trees or other plants, now we just have that bare surface, then it really adds up to a huge amount. And not only does that have to do with the the actual temperature, but that actually changes the water cycle so that you may have areas where you once had rain that you don't anymore. And I'm thinking of that example specifically from um, material that's in my new book called The Reindeer Chronicles. So I went to Spain and I visited with a climatologist named Mian Mian. And He's been studying the change in weather patterns in the Western Mediterranean. He lives in, in the, so the Spanish Mediterranean, just north of Valencia. That's where he's based. And there used to be, in the summer, rain coming every day. It was very regular. So he said that you could sit there, you could walk, so you get a really sunny afternoon, and then the clouds come in, and then you get a nice cooling rain that nourish the land so that the farmers could depend on this water. The air was cool and fresh. And in starting in, I think like the sixties or seventies, that pattern started to change. So he started to, he looked at why. And as it turns out, 
the water from the evaporating from the Mediterranean was never enough to provide the high enough concentration of moisture to create a rain, to make a rain, a rainfall. So he understood that uh, through all of his research that he learned that because of the area being built up for hotels and the marshes covered over for farming, all of the changes in the use of land meant that there was no longer, that meant that the, that the water coming from the Mediterranean wasn't picking up enough moisture from, from all the plants that were transpiring mm. to kind of have enough of a hit of rain. So a hit of water to create the rain. So these dynamics can be really, they can seem really subtle, but they really, really add up. And there's a quote from a, an Australian farmer that I often like to, to use because I think that it, it explains these dynamics so economically. And this, this is someone named Peter Andrews. And he says that plants manage water and in managing water, they are managing heat. Mm. And I think that that's so important when we try to grapple with what is going on in terms of climate change, because it's not simply the carbon cycle. And if we only look at the carbon cycle, we are missing many opportunities to understand how our actions are affecting the climate and also all the opportunities that we can bring the water cycle back into a functional balance so that that our ecosystems are functional enough to regulate heat. Mm, this is really powerful. There's a technical term for this process that I can't remember right now or I can't think of right now, but it basically ex explains what you just mentioned in terms of how if we think about a continent that is really large, for example, the African continent, a lot of the rain that occurs really inland, it doesn't come from the oceans transpiring and then it raining by the coast. It comes from there kind of being forests and a lot of greenery and brush on the coast that, you know, when they transpire, and there's water vapor, the wind then blows that further inland, and then it rains further inland for more greenery inland. And then it kind of it's kind of like a pump or like a pipe in the air that keeps carrying that water as vapor further and further and further inland. So I guess when we when we talk about deforestation or land degradation of lands that are near the coastal areas, that might very well affect the rain levels that happen inland elsewhere. Absolutely. And you nailed it. That mechanism that you're talking about is called the biotic pump. Mm. So what that refers to is that when you have a concentration of trees and they are all transpiring, that creates a low pressure zone and moisture comes in to fill that, that low pressure, to fill that, that void created. So in other words, just like you said, you know, it certainly makes sense that 
land at the coast is getting water from the oceans. But how do you explain how that moisture moves inland? And basically that that pump mechanism is pulling moisture. So most of our rain comes from plants. So it cycles from the ocean to plants and those plants transpire and that moisture then moves inland pulled from via the biotic pump. Yeah, so exactly what what you're saying is that this is why it is so concerning that we are losing intact forests. So this fluidity of water's movement, is this why you don't see water as a noun but rather as a verb? Yeah, very much. I really think that it's helpful to look at water processes. So when you look at water as a thing, it's kind of this static thing and you know, we either have it or we don't have it or we fight over it. You know, people talk of wars over wars that could be coming over water. But if we look at water processes, then we can see how water works, how it moves across the landscape and as we've been talking about through the atmosphere, we can start to understand how we can support those processes. So, so we've got transpiration, and then there's condensation, which is sort of the meteorological mirror of transpiration, and that's when water condenses and when it forms clouds and then forms rain, and that's really important, and dew. And what I think is so interesting is that while we think of dew as just sort of this kind of minor phenomenon, well, there are plants that get most of their rain from dew, and we can learn to use that. So I know that there are a lot of people that consider dew the most important water in the landscape because it is the most dependable and therefore you can work with it and plant in a way that you're getting more dew, let's say planting away from the morning sun so that the dew st- the moisture stays longer into the day and therefore can keep the microorganisms feeding the processes that help support the plant. So that's another one. And then another kind of verb, another way to understand how water works is through infiltration. And again, that is really important. So that's what Alan Savory talked about, having effective rainfall. So what's important is not how much rainfall a given landscape receives, but making that water, making that rain more effective. So if you get a lot of rain and the soil is bare and there are no plants on it, and therefore you're also kind of losing the microbial life, well, you could get a lot of rain and then it's not going to stay in the landscape because there's nothing to hold it. Mm. So that what what what's important is having water that infiltrates that stays in the landscape so that supports the microbial life that supports the plant life that that is held because carbon is in the landscape and in the soil and in the in the soil 
carbon acts like a sponge and holds on to that water. So as um, one of the people that I talked to actually in, in a couple of my books now, Precious Fury in Zimbabwe, she says that there are places where no matter how much rain you get, you will still be in drought mode. So what I would say is that drought is relative. It's not only a matter of the rainfall. When we talk about freshwater scarcity, then how much of it is the amount of freshwater we use and how much of it is really our disruption of the water cycle that leads the water we use or that falls on our urban landscapes to be unable to continue on in that circularity of water in the biosphere? I would say it's both. And certainly we're not, I would not say that we're using water in the, in the most efficient way that we can. What I mean is that there's a lot of wasted water, you know, maybe a lot of irrigation wouldn't need to happen if that landscape, that agricultural landscape was doing a better job of holding on to water. And of course, in our lives, we, in our modern urban, suburban, or actually in, in our, all of our domestic use, I think we do use too much water. But what is really important is what happens to the water when it does fall. Because, so as an example, I think it was 2013 that was the lowest rainfall year in the Los Angeles area. And yet, the enough water fell to absolutely make provide all of the water needs that the entire city had. But as you said, a lot of that water was was falling on the highway, was falling on sidewalks, in parking lots, and so was not being kept. And I talked about how we want to have uh, on any place that there's land and, and soil, you know, any place that's not paved over, we want to make sure that there's enough carbon and plants and living matter to slow down that water. But the same does go for our urban landscapes as well. So there are a lot of ways to slow it down on people's, on your own landscapes or to be harvested in urban landscapes. So, so I just don't think that we've really applied our creativity sufficiently to make the best use of our water in urban landscapes. There are a lot of research studies on the environmental impact of growing different crops or making different things, producing different things, and they often have this measurement of water use. So it sounds like with all of this in mind, we really have to contextualize that water use and think about, you know, how healthy is the soil where this water is being used as irrigation? Where's this water then going to? And does this water remain clean when it's done being used or is it polluted when it's done being used and so forth? Right, because water is cleansed by soil. Water by moving through soil and rocks and and all and also water is cleansed through the process of transpiration and condensation. The cleanest water is rainwater because it has been purified through the process. So keeping the water cycle moving allows us to have the fresh water and clean water that we need. 
And yeah, that example, I think it's the water footprint. Just one perfect case of that is I, I forget exactly how much water is being, it, one uses, they say that one uses if one has a hamburger. Well, there's hamburger that's produced in the industrial agricultural system, which leads to a lot of pollution, a lot of irrigation of crops to feed the animals, a lot of water needed to keep the animals clean enough because they are crammed together. But then you could actually say that in certain situations, the raising of livestock actually creates clean water. I mean, I've been to ranches where the animal impact is building the soil, is enhancing the growth of grass, is building biodiversity. And the people that are managing their animals this way have water when their neighbors don't. So as you say, it's all about context. But we all look we all look for things to be simple. I mean, of course, I'm as guilty of that as anything. But when it comes to how our environment works, we are best served by, by going more deeply into the questions. The cemetery grounds I wander through them aimlessly What are your thoughts on how the privatization of water has impacted the water cycle and access to clean water? I am a very strong advocate of the water commons. I believe that water belongs to everybody and to privatize it, I believe is, well, I, I think it's an injustice. And I think when I think that when something belongs to everybody, everybody has a responsibility and everybody receives benefit. Whereas once water is privatized, well, I think it's a very slippery slope because then soil can be privatized, air can be privatized. I just think it's really not the right framework. In fact, I see a big problem with land privatized. Mm. I really think that when we look at so many of our global environmental, social, and economic challenges, it really comes down to privatization. I'll give you a couple of examples from my new book, The Reindeer Chronicles. So in Saudi Arabia, I talked to a, a fellow who ran, his name is Neil Spackman, and his, he's done an extra, led an extraordinary project to bring water and moisture to the desert. I mean, when we, when we talk about a desert, this is a place where they may go three years without a meaningful rainfall. So what he observed is that 
the, okay, the land has become increasingly a desert. So there, he said that there used to be, in people's memories, there used to be two pretty decent rainfalls every year during the rainy season. And that has become less and less. And he says that one factor was the change in the laws around land, that there used to be a traditional way of managing land called Hima that the Bedouin followed so that the land was held in common and that the Bedouin would, would follow, would move and follow the reins and bring their, their herds, their herds of camel, sheep, and goats. But then in the early 1950s, the law changed so that this was no longer possible and that land was either privately owned or owned by the state. And that, he believes, is what led to the degradation of the land. He said that when, that when he talks to people in their 50s or 60s or older, that they said that there were places where their families would go where there was always water and there was, there was always forest. But mm. that isn't the case now. So the thing is that when you have land that is privatized, well, then whoever owns that land can do whatever they want with that land. The problem with that, and I know this may be seen as radical, is that, okay, so let's say I own a bunch of land and I say, you know what, I think I would like, you know, I could use a little cash right now. I think I'll cut down all the trees. Okay. You could say, well, that's my right. But the people who live downstream of me depended on those trees to manage, to help protect against wind, to help manage the water cycle in this landscape, to ensure that there's rain and so to ensure that the water flows in a manageable way, that the water flow is slow so that the water meanders rather than just, you know, moving really quickly across bare soil and therefore causing floods and sediments into the rivers and streams, etc. So the point is that we all are affected by what happens on the land. And therefore, I feel all should have a say in what happens to land, in our landscapes, mm. in our regions. I think this goes back to the idea that boundaries are entirely human constructed and the earth is really one whole functioning system. So this is kind of an extreme example, but if we were to think about the body as one system, if you take out one organ, that affects the entire body and it's not just about that one thing. So like we mentioned earlier with the biotic pump, if you have someone that owns land, a lot of land by the coast, and they decide to cut down all the trees, that may then affect all of the people inland who are unable to get that same rain from that biotic pump process. So definitely a lot to, a lot to ponder here. 
And I've also been thinking about how we've not just disrupted the water cycle, but how we've changed it. So in a place like Southern California, where it's pretty dry and doesn't rain a lot, we've been transporting in water from elsewhere that in addition to people just using indoors, uh, people also use that water to water their lawns, irrigate their gardens or farms, and that can then transpire to affect our humidity levels and maybe at a larger time scale, change the patterns of rain. So is this another literal way that we've been changing our microclimates? And do you think there is a good or bad in turning dry regions or even deserts into wetter ecosystems this way? Like I know China has been turning some of its vast deserts into green spaces. I guess the way that I look at things is in terms of ecological function. And I would say that the greater ecological function, the better. So if by, well, I would say bringing in water is one thing, but being able to hold on to that water, that's when you start getting enhanced ecological function. If it's just coming in and then it's just um, streaming away and carrying pollutants over highways, then that's a problem or being used to irrigate lawns and then those lawn, people who own those lawns are putting on chemicals and mm -hmm. then you, you've introduced poisons into the toxins into the water cycle, that's, that's a concern. But I don't know. At this point, I would say that the more land covered that is functioning where water is transpiring and you have local cooling – where you're getting condensation because the pump is bringing that water in. There are enough plants to create, enough trees to create that pump, and water is infiltrating and supporting biodiversity. I would say that's definitely a good thing mm. because there is so much water, so much land that is moving in the opposite direction as we speak. Right. I guess the exception would be if that fresh water used to irrigate is being taken from somewhere where it causes harm to that community and to the ecosystem there. Yes, I would definitely, definitely agree that you have to look at the source of water. And as you were saying earlier, is that water may be dammed and then that has a whole host of ecological implications because when you're damming water then that water isn't flowing and meandering the way that it had been before and I know that in many places certainly in the Pacific Northwest where they the dams have meant that the that the fish runs and particularly the salmon runs aren't happening but the wonderful thing is that when they on make when I forget what they called when when they undam the river mm. that the runs are moving again and the salmon are back and that's just one example of of many of how nature wants to come back nature wants to be there biodiversity wants to flourish water wants to flow soil wants to be rich in life and including in in carbon life which is often embodied in the the microorganisms the 
fungus, the mycelium, all of all of that. So, yeah, we we can we can trust that when we work with nature, everything moves in a positive direction because nature wants to wants to heal. So in bringing together everything that we discussed here, what should our water literacy inform us regarding the best way for us to prevent water scarcity and therefore water conflicts? Well, I think that with all natural resources, including water, I think that we would benefit, we collectively as humans would benefit from shifting from approaching everything from a standpoint of scarcity to looking at abundance. Because if we start to think from a frame of abundance, we realize just how much water there is. I mentioned this example of Neil Spackman in Western Saudi Arabia, where they have maybe, maybe they went three years without rain. This is actually an incredible story. So So they planted trees. So what they did was they harvested the rain that they did receive and they kept it on the landscape by using different kinds of earthworks. And when they, when it rained, they ran and I mean, they rushed and they planted and then they would, they, they would build up a bank of water through the harvesting. So in, they've been doing this for a few years when the particular project ran out of money. And so they were no longer able to do the irrigation. So Neil's reaction was, well, okay, I guess we're going to see what is able to survive. And the amazing thing is that without irrigation, 80% of the trees survived during a time when I think they went maybe after that, a year and a half without rain, then another two years without rain, because what they were able to do in this place of extreme water scarcity, create water abundance to only use as much water as they were able to capture. And then through doing that, they built enough resilience in the system that the trees were able to get water from the, the mycelial networks that had been created within the soil and survive. So the point is that even in the most extreme circumstances, we can create abundance. And when you are looking from a standpoint of abundance rather than scarcity, everything looks different mm. because you behave differently. As we look forward to our solutions, you've mentioned before that we can't just rely on scientific research because of the politicization of agricultural science and the limitations of things being done, being studied inside of labs. So what should we keep in mind about this regarding the amount of financial resources maybe being invested in lab-focused research as opposed to the resources needed to support systems-based solutions out in the field? Well, I think the thing to know is that people are out there doing the work. It, you don't hear about it in the news. Every once in a while you do. But people are in every different kind of geographical context. People are 
reforesting. They are holding on to water. They are coming up with creative solutions for having enough water on landscapes that had been water scarce. They are building biodiversity and observing how nature works. So, so know that this is happening, that there are ways that people can get involved and, and go to these places where people are, are doing these things. So as an example, in India, I, I forget the name of the project, but because, the, because of the work that they've been doing to harvest water, they have, in many places, they have gone from one season or, you know, like one crop in a year to four crops in a year. And in Zimbabwe, when they are working with the Africa Center for Holistic Management, I know that they, that there are people that they were able to grow food for just during the rainy season or right after the rainy season for four months of the year, they or no, for two and a half months of the year, they are now able to grow crops seven months of the year. And that has made the difference in these communities from being dependent on international food aid to being food self-sufficient. So I would say, be curious, know that there are lots of ways to investigate and explore and do experiments. A lot of people are doing experiments on their farms and they're trying different techniques. So yeah, um, know that, know that it's happening. Mm is what I would say. Definitely very heartening to hear. And finally, my question is, how how would you recommend our listener take on a more holistic approach in their activism to help heal our water cycle, carbon cycle, nutrient cycles, and our ecosystems essentially as fluid and functioning systems? What can What, what can we do as individuals on this front? As individuals, I would say start where you are. Look right outside. Is is the lawn in your apartment building, let's say in the courtyard of your apartment building, or if you live in your own home, how many species of plants are in that lawn? Because even something as simple as allowing clover and dandelions to grow will mean that you have different levels of root systems, that you're supporting greater biodiversity. So every positive step in a landscape is meaningful. Get involved locally. So if, if there are solar parks where you are, well, what it, how is that grass being managed? If it's being managed by grazing animals, well, then you're adding a whole other le level, many layers of ecological function. So animals in the landscape are really important for the health of the land and also for fire management. So I say ask questions in your community. Also, yeah, and, and where is, is there land where food could be grown? That's important because obviously to provide healthy food for people in the community, but also when you have a lot of land that's being tended lovingly, well, that's greater biodiversity, greater variety of, of plants. And yeah, I would say observe and ask questions and also know that really there are so many organizations 
that are focused on helping people get involved in improving land. So um, a colleague of mine, Diana Donlan, has an organization called Soil Centric, where people who are interested in regenerative agriculture can find a way that they can get involved. There's an active earth regenerators study group that someone named Joe, Joe Brewer has and hundreds, actually there are more than a thousand people in this study group and people are finding their own way. So some people are getting involved in how to, how to be a parent that in a way that promotes regeneration of the earth. There's the ecosystem restoration camp movement where, my goodness, when I finished my book, there was only two active camps where people can go and and learn how to regenerate landscapes. And now there are more than 20, including one in California that is devoted to how to regenerate landscapes after a crisis that was specifically the camp fire in near Sacramento in at the end of 2018. So there's there's so many ways that people can get involved, whether it's donating needed funds because these particular efforts aren't always. So, I mean, there's so there's funds needed for so many projects, whether it's investing in regional regenerative food systems, whether it's actually going out there and and learning. There are so many there there's so much free learning opportunities right now about how to grow food, how to I mean, when you think about it, anytime you're growing food, that is taking stress off the industrial food system. And it's important to understand that the industrial food system is based on a global supply chain that as we're, we've seen during COVID-19, that these supply chains are actually quite fragile. So everyone can get involved in helping to, re, to build regenerative food systems on a regional basis. So there's so much that everyone can do. And it really depends on what each person's inclination is. So I'm continually learning. I, I have a garden, but I'm planning on taking a permaculture design course really soon because that will help me think about my land in a larger context and also to understand all the great work that's been being done in understanding how to apply design with our own plants and what we have in our in our land our our own landscapes well green dreamer if you want to learn more and stay updated on judith's work as well as check out her new book the reindeer chronicles you can head to www.judithdshorts.com as well as chelseagreen.com for her book and be sure to also follow her on twitter at judithdshorts Judith, thank you so much for joining us today for round two. I know a lot of our listeners really resonated with our first conversation back on episode 130. So we really appreciate you coming back to help us deepen our learnings together. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Just stay hopeful and really 
just just know that it's I just believe so deeply that at some point our collective work will be recognized as that of healing the earth and to look for opportunities to learn about earth repair and to to know that it's happening and to look out for where it is happening and the beauty that is being created through these efforts. You were listening to Green Dreamer, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've learned from or have been inspired by this episode, I would love to have your direct support on Patreon at greendreamer.com support so that I can keep this independent show going and accessible for everyone. Patreon is where our guests' final five tips, personal mantras, and additional suggested readings will be shared from now on, alongside some bonus content and sometimes author book giveaways as well. So if you're able to join starting from $2 per month. Again, it's greendreamer.com slash support. Today's song feature is Yarrow by Kim Anderson. And I also want to thank our audio engineer, Scott Donnell, and our post-production content manager, Elizabeth Joy. We appreciate you so much, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. The grass beneath